This episode of the Crown Refs podcast is brought to you by RefereeStore.com. To save 15% on all United Attire products, enter Crown15 at checkout. We hope you enjoy this episode and do us one last favor before you listen. Have a great rest of your day. Hey everyone, this is Adam James, NCAA official and founder of Mindful Journey. Thanks so much for listening in to the Crown Refs podcast. Remember, serve the game. Thank you for listening to the Crown Refs podcast. The audio experience for basketball officials. Serve the game. Just to give brief oversight of my background, and you may have seen my bio, um, I'm based down in Naples, Florida. My day job is doing motivational speaking, leadership training, and an online platform center around mental health called Mindful Journey that we primarily position as an organizational wellness benefit. Individuals can sign up as well, and it's really just a place for uh, folks to go to to recalibrate in an unthreatening environment. There's not a therapy solution. Just think about pouring hope back into people's lives. Uh, that's really the intention of it. Uh, but I too am a basketball referee, just like all of you, and uh, work on the men's side. I've been um, working for two different supervisors in mid-major conferences for Division One. I've worked in the Southern, Big South, and Atlantic Sun. Uh, certainly have my own journey in officiating as we all do. And um, before beginning formally, I'd just like to start off by thanking Paul for having me. Uh, He and I met last July at J.B. Caldwell's camp in Atlanta and really love what he's doing to not only um, help basketball referees, but to also perceivably the way I look at it is to, to, to instill hope and inspiration in you all as well who are committing to serving the game. So Paul, thanks for having me. Thanks for what you're doing. And to the three of you here with us live, and those of you who may be listening in later, thanks for your commitment to serving the game and for what it is that you all do. Uh, You know, it's funny as basketball referees, we can all relate because we've probably been asked, um, even Andrew, if you're starting off, I know you're just 16, but even if you've been doing it one, two, three years, or just six months, uh, you've probably been heard, probably have heard you know, why would you want a referee you get yelled at, you know, who in their right mind would want a referee. So not only are we all a little unique in that regard, but secondarily, we're also unique because we're the type of oddballs who come to evening sessions at 8 p.m. on, you know, Eastern time to to commit to betterment and self-improvement. And so there's something to be said about that. And I just didn't want to continue forth without commending you for your efforts to crown ref and crown refs and what it is that you're doing with all that being said my hope in the next 20 minutes is really to dive into the trenches with you to get really real with you to ask you some incredibly tough questions with the hope that you'll inherently challenge yourself to ask yourself some incredibly tough questions too unlike some of your past guests You know, my approach may be just a little bit different. Obviously, I want to leave you here tonight being a little bit of a better basketball referee. But more importantly, because of my day job and and immersion and working with individuals and organizations alike, my hope is to have you walking away from this session, not only inspired and encouraged to tackle objectives that you may have or objections that you may be facing in your life, but to help you become a better brother, 
a better husband, a better wife, a better, I know we don't have any females on here, but some may be watching later, uh, you know, a, a better spouse, a better human. That is really what my hope here is in the 20 to 30 minutes that we have tonight. To get there, we're going to focus on three primary areas. One is passion. Two is reframing failure. And three, broadly, is leadership. And that will tie specifically back to refereeing. So passion. Can you tell, and this is where I'd love some interaction from you all. Paul, feel free to chime in too. Uh, can you tell when you're talking with someone if they're passionate about what it is that they do? Yes or no? I see the head nods. So that's, oh, yeah. that's, that's great. Undoubtedly, you can certainly always tell if somebody's passionate, typically within the first 15 to 20 seconds of interacting with that individual. You can tell if they're passionate based upon how they talk, how they walk, how they sit and listen, their presence. There are a number of things that allow you to identify if somebody's passionate about what it is that they do. However, the harsh truth and unfortunate reality is that so few people live with, work with, or occupy such passion in today's world. People have allowed the bad breaks, the missed opportunities, the games that maybe went south, the leagues that you didn't get hired into, the conflicts that you had with your partner, the coronavirus, politics, all of these things that are out there in the world that are external factors. We allow all of these things to suck away our joy, our enthusiasm, our passion. And you may be thinking, well, Adam, what, what does that matter? Why? So what if I've lost my passion? And if that's your mindset, hopefully it's not. Passion is something that although it can't be felt, although it's not tangible, why it matters to have it is because it can undoubtedly be felt from an emotional connection standpoint from a connectivity with others. We've all just uncovered that. You're able to tell, you've all told me, you're able to tell if somebody's passionate and passion is contagious. We want to be around passionate people and the passionate referee is going to be the individual who's going to do whatever it takes for as long as it takes. They're the ones who show up to the Crown Refs podcast live. They're the one who watch these replays on demand. They're the ones who not only commit to the subscription of being involved in the community and being involved in the program, but are willing to implement what it is that's learned. They're the ones willing to dig deep. And if you're somebody listening right now who might feel like you've lost your passion, or even if you haven't lost your passion, my hope is to help you regain or retain your passion. As you might be able to tell, I tend to speak with a little bit of passion. And as a result of that, I've been asked so many times throughout my speaking career, you know, how do you speak with so much passion, et cetera. But one time in particular stands out. I had just started speaking, actually. This is back 2014, 2015. I received a note from someone I'd went to high school with. I hadn't talked to him in a number of years. We lost touch through college. And he sent me a message. He said, Adam, I loved your message. I found significant value in it. He said, but I got to ask. How do you speak with so much passion? And although I was humbled by and grateful for his kind words, I was really frustrated. I was frustrated to believe that this young man who was, I call him young, I was the same age, but this was 25 years old. 
you know, who I only see from a social media perspective, seemingly had, you know, he had built a beautiful family, was in a good career, seemingly to me, was already at such a young age, believing that he didn't have any passion. He was living passionless. And it dawned on me in those moments, if at 25, we feel that, do we feel at 35 and 45? And 55 and 65 and 75. The harsh truth is that as time goes on and we're exposed to more failures, more bad breaks, more things that go south, our passion is even more diminished. So when this man asked me how it is that I'm able to speak with so much passion, I told him it's because I have an overwhelming why. Sorry, I just I wanted to get myself you off of here. I told him it's because I have an overwhelming why. Why I do what I do is not about me. It's so much bigger than me. And what I see in our world today is that why people give up when adversity arises is because it's so self-centered. It's all about them. And for me, the way I know this is not about me is because if it was, I would have quit long ago. I would have quit. I was sleeping in my car in a Walmart parking lot when I was 23 years old, when I just started my business. I was broken, defeated, filled with pride and ego. I had a family who would have gladly had me back home, but I didn't tell anyone because I was so fearful of what the world would think of me. In those moments, I was living passionless. But I'm here to tell you when I look back, because I've been asked hundreds, if not thousands of times, what got you out of those moments? And yes, I can pinpoint a few mentors and having the courage to ask tough questions, et cetera, et cetera. But really, it was about you all. And Andrew, Jeff, Luke, Paul, I know you're thinking, well, you don't even know me, Adam. And I'm not talking necessarily about you individually. I'm talking about the recognition and realization that there are people out there in pain every single day. Maybe one of you four, maybe some of the listeners who will be watching this later. And I believe that it was my responsibility because I felt hopeless and helpless so many times in life, my life that I had an obligation and a duty to pour hope back into the world. So for me, my why, is way bigger than me. And if it was just about me, I would have quit. Because when you hit adversity, if the only thing you're doing, what you're doing for is for financial gain, for notoriety, for publicity, for followers, et cetera, et cetera, when the times get tough, there's not going to be anything bigger than you pulling you. So I challenge you all right now to think, why do you do what you do? Why are you here at 8 p.m. or watching this at 1 a.m. or 4 p.m. or 3 p.m. or whenever you're watching this? Why do you referee? Why do you hang out with the people you hang out with? Why do you read the books that you read or choose not to read? Why do you work where you work? Why do you do what you do? Sadly, for so many we just go through the motions, we meander through life and we're unaware of how it is that we're showing up or why it is that we're doing what we're doing. We never take time to think about what we're thinking about. When I told my friend that, 
in order to find his passion, that you have to pull out some deep why and have something bigger than you. I could hear his voice on the phone. It was almost like I was giving him lip service, like, well, Adam, that's great. You have some adversity you went through. He said, but man, I don't have no purpose. This, he wasn't as depressive as I'm making it out to sound, but in essence, that's what he said. I don't have a purpose. I don't have anything bigger than me. I don't have a why. How do I find it? So first of all, that's nonsense. We all have a purpose. Every one of us, every single one of us. And I said, secondarily, the way you find your why is you have to look for it. You have to look for it. You know, we, we come home from work and Andrew, I know this might not resonate with you, but, you know, at 16, you might not be working a full-time job, right? But even still, you're coming home from school and maybe after school, rather than investing in yourself and taking time to just slow down and think, it's easy to just sit on the couch for the remainder of the night. And for those of you who work nine to fives, you might under you know you might understand this a little more deeply that when you come home and you're exhausted at day's end the first thing most people want to do is just turn on the tv crack a can of beer and you know just sit sit on the couch for the rest of the night and i'm not undermining anyone who's done that i've done that but what i'm saying is that if we repeat that every single day day after day for the entirety of our life of course we're never going to find our why it's not just going to come to us we have to be intentional, deliberate about searching out what's going on in our headspace. The, the, the harsh truth is that when it comes to things that are meaningful to us, we'll search relentlessly. But when it comes to things that take effort, we search until we get tired. And when we get tired, we quit. I'll, I'll give you an example by a quick show of hands. How many of you have ever misplaced your car keys, your wallet, or your phone before. Yeah, all of us. And Andrew, I'm disappointed, man. 16, you're supposed to be up with all the apps and everything now. There are apps that let you know where everything is. But I say that jokingly, but again, I, I've asked this question of you know hundreds of audiences. And the, the truth is, yes, we've all misplaced those things. And I know that before the app era, when you couldn't just find you know, your phone by going on your computer and saying, where's my iPhone? I would search relentlessly. I would pull couch, cush couch cushions off. I would search my car. I'd call my friends if it was a wallet. Hey, where were we last night? Did I leave it at that restaurant? Do you think? And you'll do whatever it takes for as long as it takes until you find that thing that is so meaningful and dear to you. But when it comes to our why and slowing down to think about our purpose and why we do what we do, man, it hurts. It hurts our headspace. It's not easy to sit in solitude and ask ourselves tough questions. So I challenge you to think, when's the last time you slowed down to really get in tune with what it is that you're thinking about? I'll give you one, just one more example to kind of help drive this home. There's a book I read years ago called Thinking Fast and Slow by a famous psychologist, Daniel Kahneman. And Kahneman says in the book, what I love about his writing is he breaks it down at a simplistic level, some kind of complex ideologies. And he breaks our brain down very simply into two systems, system one and system two. Pretty complex stuff, I know. And he says system one part of our brain is a part of our brain that when activated operates on autopilot. 
You know, if I were to ask any of you, Luke, Jeff, Andrew, Paul, what two plus two is, all of you would be able to say four without blinking, without any thought. It's automatic. But if I were to ask you now a more complex problem, one that needs to be dug into, one that you couldn't use a calculator to solve, that's the part of our brain that when activated causes our palms to get sweaty, our pupils to dilate, our heart rate to increase, and it creates a physiological response that literally makes us uncomfortable. And when we're in that uncomfortable space, we do everything we can to avoid it. So we engage with it for two minutes. That problem I may ask you to solve, you might be like, I wanna try this. But then two minutes into it, you're feeling all these feelings. And you're like, man, I'm done with this. Let me go back to the couch. And sadly, that's what 99% of people do. And then we look for excuses and we tell people that we don't have a purpose, that we can't find our why. The problem is, is we've not dug in for long enough to search for it. You deserve to search for it because you deserve to live a life of passion. The second thing I want to chat with you about tonight is reframing failure. Any of you on here love to fail? Does anyone love to fail? Heck no. Heck no. Paul's kind of raising his hand. I, you know, Paul, I, 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 I love, you're so used to, because uh, I know what you're doing in your business, right? You get the negative comments, you get people rejecting, turning down. I, I still get it in mind, right? No one's immune from it. I, I've talked to entrepreneurs who are worth billions of dollars, literally with a B, and they still fail. So I get why Paul might be like, yeah, kind of, but at your core, Paul, if we're being honest, none of us really love the idea of failure. And that, in my estimation, is a result of how our society has framed it for so long, right? When you think of the word failure, there are so many negative adjectives we use to describe those who might have failed. You know, if you're talking to somebody and your friend comes up to you and says, man, did you hear Jimmy such a failure? You know, you might think that whoever your friend is is unkind and he probably shouldn't be saying that, but your thought now of Jimmy might go to, well, you know what? Yeah, Jimmy might be living on the streets. He might've engaged in alcoholism. He might've engaged in all these negative things because the word failure is so defining, so debilitating, so final. And what I'm challenging us to do here tonight is to reframe failure so that you can be someone like Paul who's kind of like on the fence of, you know what? Yeah, I kind of like to fail because Paul has probably unknowingly to him reframed and reshaped what failure means. That's what I've had to do. I have failed thousands of times. And I'm here to tell you that had I, had I allowed failure to be what our society thinks it is, which is life-defining, I would have never continued. Take the why out of it, right? I would have just quit because I would have been feeling sorry for myself because failure hurts. So rather than running from it, what I want us to do is to embrace it and reframe what it means. Because when we stop looking at it as though it's something life-defining, we are willing to get out of our comfort zone more often to make the tough call, to have the difficult conversation, to start a business, to grow our business, to ask the girl or guy out of our dreams, to 
to, 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 to mend a friendship, to do whatever it is that, that inherently comes not naturally because of this fear of failure. So what do we have to do to get there? Well, I'm gonna hopefully give you a few tips, tricks, strategies, call them what you may that will help you. But I, before diving into that, I, I wanna give a little more context to this because I have had the great privilege to work with a number of organizations. And a lot of what I speak from now is from experiences that I've seen in work environments. And these work environments, every organization in America has a mission, a vision, a set of core values. And they all, almost all of them say, yeah, we, we give our people autonomy and we give them permission to try new things and take risks, et cetera. And on the front end, when I'm doing a leadership training or some sort of engagement with a group, it varies by nature. I always interview people on you know, frontline, mid-level managers, and then of course the executive leaders. And obviously the leaders always say, we're doing everything we say we're doing. And the frontline leaders, mid-level managers say, our company doesn't do any of that. We don't even know what our mission vision statement is. And not only that, but they have this mounting performance pressure internally that disallows us to ever show up with any creativity. So then I go out and ask the leaders, I say, do your people feel comfortable failing? And they say, well, yes, Adam, of course. And then the next question comes and they never know how to answer it. I say, how do they know that they can fail? And they inevitably almost always come back to, well, because we tell them. I said, okay, so it's one thing to tell them, but the first time they actually try something and fail, what happens internally? You see, because failure have such, has such a negative connotation, we like to celebrate it and say we don't mind it. But the reality is, is so many of us sit in silos in our offices or in life just playing it safely enough so that we're not operating or scribbling outside the lines. We work for these organizations that say we can fail, but the first moment we scribble out of the lines, they reprimand us in some extreme cases, they fire us or they put us on probation or they put us performance review or whatever the case may be. And what I'm saying is that we have got to celebrate failure rather than hiding from it. We have to reframe it, we have to reshape it. We have to say there's a lesson to be learned on the other side of it. But to get there, we have to be intentional and deliberate, again, about how it is that we receive it. So, the, the, and I, I hope that provides context for, um, you know, the, the organization piece I think is important because when you think of organizations and their, you know, folks who, who aren't maybe performing and excelling, it's often a time a result of the fear of failing. And I think with referees, the same is true. We go to these camps and we walk on eggshells because we're afraid of making a mistake. But what if we looked at failure not as something that was life-defining, but as something that we could actually celebrate? And so that's what I want you to do. Three things. The next time failure comes up for you, I want you to do these very simple three things. Very simple. If you don't get an assignment you wanted, if you don't get hired into the league that you'd hoped for, if you don't get the promotion at your job, if your business doesn't grow the way you wanted, if you don't get the relationship, you don't get the marriage, whatever it is, I want you to do these three things. The first thing is I want you to ask yourself one simple question. What can I learn from this? 
by asking that question, you are giving yourself permission to confront the failure. I get so tired of hearing from people that, hey, you can just fail your way to success. That is BS. It's BS. I, I think part of the, the, the challenge that we're seeing in our world with increasing rises in depression, anxiety, mental health challenges, and homelessness is a result of people who have been beat down year after year after year, who've allowed the failures to define them where they don't even know that who they are anymore. So they begin relying on substances, etc., to numb the pain. And I can tell you when I was sleeping in my car, had it not been for certain mentors and me, I don't know what it is to this day. I don't know what it is that gave me the courage to finally call someone and say, man, I'm sleeping in my car. Can I come stay on your couch? And fortunately I had people in my life who were willing to, to allow me to, to do so. But you know, the, 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 the reality is, is when, when we're in desperate moments, we, if we don't confront it, if we don't learn the lesson, then we allow ourselves to maybe go down a cyclical pattern of negative behaviors, et cetera. So by asking the question of what can I learn from it, you're giving yourself permission to not only confront the failure, but then be able to pull the lesson from it. So that's the first thing we've got to be able to do. Um, there's it's something in medicine called morbidity and mortality conferences. They're in every hospital in America. They happen weekly in some occasions. Sometimes they're uh, monthly, sometimes quarterly. It depends upon you know the, the size of the hospital or what may have just transpired internally. But these M&M conferences are exactly what it is that we're talking about here right now, where doctors, surgeons, et cetera, are coming together to dissect why things went awry. And you want to talk about failure. Those are some tough things to confront. When a surgeon makes a decision that might error or cause death of a patient, he or she is now expected to come in front of their peers and colleagues to dissect why that happened. Now, I'm not saying they celebrate failure because they're not happy that the patient died or there might've been a complication that caused a life altering debilitation, but they're willing to put a mechanism in place so that they decrease the likelihood of it happening again in the future. And that's what we want to do when we fail is look at it and say, what can I learn from this? So that we're one, willing to confront it and two, we can find the lesson to get on the other side of it. The other thing I think that's so important is to detach our identity from the failure. We're living in this world right now where everyone is so driven by, by how they're received, by the number of likes, by number of followers and social media, by the filters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when we are in pursuit of something, our identity ends up becoming attached to it. And when our identity is attached to something, it's all or nothing. For instance, if you want to be an NBA referee, you want to be a high school basketball referee, you want to be a men's division one referee, a women's division one referee, if you believe that that very thing is your identity, that if you don't reach there, your happiness will never be able to be had in life, 
then you are inherently more likely to allow failure to define you. You will carry the label of failure on your back. You'll be walking around feeling like your failure will be on your forehead for everyone to see because your whole identity was wrapped up in that thing. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't strive for every goal that we want, every dream that we want. What I am saying is that we have got to be outcome driven, but not outcome dependent, outcome focused, but not outcome dependent. That if we fall just a touch short, it's, it, it's, it doesn't mean that we can't have happiness and fulfillment in life. And that's the end goal is happiness, is fulfillment. And one thing I'd want to challenge you to do, you know, it's funny because when we fail, we oftentimes will wear it as a label. We view ourselves as a failure. It's like, I didn't get into that league. I didn't get into this conference. I didn't get that opportunity. So I'm a failure. But if we're going to label ourselves all the failures that we've accumulated, can't we label ourselves all the success that we've had? What about the successes? You learned to ride a bike when you were a kid. There's some people, I know this might be funny, some people don't know how to ride a bike. You learned to swim when you were a kid, perhaps. Admittedly, I'm a terrible swimmer. I, I can swim underwater. I could swim to save my life, but I never really learned how to swim. Some of you graduated high school, college, gone on to post-grad, got married, started a family. Those are successes, man. So if you're going to define yourself as a failure and carry yourself around as though you're a failure, well, what about all the successes you accumulated? If you're going to label yourself that way, label yourself both ways. That way you have some energy and some enthusiasm to get on the other side of this perceived failure. And I'll wrap up here shortly because I, uh, I know Paul and I want to do a little Q&A, but the last thing I just want to share with you, we'll talk just a touch about leadership the last thing, the third thing to do when you fail. So we've talked, number one, just ask the simple question so you can confront it. The second thing that we talked, um, obviously detaching your identity from it. But the third thing, please give yourself some grace. Please give yourself some grace. We tend to be so hard on ourselves. We fail at something and again, we hold it as a label. Give yourself some grace. You don't have to have everything perfect. You don't need to work 20 Division I games your first year in the league. You don't need to work March Madness your fifth year as a Division I official. You don't need to make it to the NBA in your first attempt. You don't need to get to JV varsity, from JV to varsity in one year. Give yourself some grace. I was talking with a friend of mine, <clears throat> excuse me, a few years ago, a local guy to where I am is very successful in business. And he's, you know, he's, he's, he's been used to being a high performer, high achiever, et cetera. Very nice man. We we're just catching up over coffee. And he was telling me, we were talking about this concept of how we're so hard on ourselves. And he said, Adam, you know, for a large part of my career, I've been very hard on myself, on myself. And he said, it wasn't until a few years ago I was taking piano lessons that I really realized the consequences to my well-being by doing such. 
he took piano lessons just to challenge himself. He's that type of guy. He likes trying new things. And he hired this woman who um, in our area is just a well-known pianist and she'll, she'll come to your uh, place or you can go to their studio and learn how to play the piano. And he had been learning a new key or a compilation of keys to, to figure out this song. And in midst of attempting it in her presence, he was falling short. And as she was observing and teaching, she recognized that he was becoming noticeably frustrated. And in, in some occurrences, even saying unkind things to himself. Like, why can't I get this? I had it last time. I'm never going to be able to grasp this. You know, just that self-talk, both out loud it was being said, but internally it was even worse. And she interrupted him and she said, Martin, she said, she, she said, I'm going to tell you something about myself that I've never told you before. And he's like ready to get back to the keys. Like, what is like, I'm not, you know, I'm not paying you to give me stories. I'm, I'm paying you to help me. And he's all beating himself up. And she says, well, this will be, this will be part, this will be a valuable lesson. It's going to actually help you become a better pianist. She says, you don't know this about me, but years ago, I had been diagnosed with stage four cancer and I didn't think I was going to make it. She said, my doctors didn't give me much of a chance. And by way of that, I didn't think I would make it. She said, in the beginning months, I began, you know, I was with excitement, you know, thinking I'm going to take this on. But as months continued, I got more frustrated. And I adopted this negative self-talk in my mind where I would wake up in the morning and I would beat myself up because I began to give myself a guilt trip over this realization that cancer came to my body. And I thought that it was because of me. I began thinking, what did I eat? Why did I eat those things? Why did I engage in these behaviors? Why didn't I exercise more? Why didn't I do that? Why did I do this? This could have been avoided. She said, I was beating myself up always until finally I got to a point where one morning I woke up, woke up in the morning and said, enough is enough. And I looked myself in the mirror and I asked myself, can I be a little less hard on myself today? And she says back to Martin, she says, Martin, she said, I just want to ask you the same question. Can you be a little less hard on yourself today? You know, we oftentimes think that by being so hard on ourselves, by putting all this pressure on our backs, that we have to perform and we've got to be the best referee. We've got to be the best crew chief. We've got to be the best husband. We've got to be the best father. If we fall just a touch short of whatever it is that we perceive is the best, in Martin's case, he believed he should have mastered that song in that moment. But had he continued to beat himself up day after day, time after time, like she had been doing in her early stages of her cancer diagnosis, it would have been a detriment to her and her debilitating disease, but to him too, in his attempt to learn a piano and to us, if we're not cognizant of what it is that we say to ourselves. So I ask you all, where in your life can you be a little less hard on yourself? Such powerful stuff. I really love what you said about passion, that it's contagious, right? Um, not letting anybody take away our passion. And 
And passion creates sustainability. If you find something that you love, you're going to be able to do it for a long time. Um, talking about making your why bigger than you. <clears throat> and I love about reframing failure. So I just want to stay on that topic real quick with regards to officiating. I know me personally, you know, when I started studying my film and, and breaking down my game, I would be very critical of myself and unkind at sometimes. I didn't realize it was unkind at the time as I started to mature and kindness is something that I won't compromise. And it starts with myself. I started being a lot more respectful with the things I'm, I'm saying while I'm going through my evaluation process. So my question for you is, <clears throat> how do we find the balance or how do officials find the balance between accountability and being critical and honest of themselves, but still maintaining that positive self-talk so it's constructive? Yeah, it's great, Paul. It's a great question. Again, it goes back to the question I asked, and I challenge them when failure rises, is what can I learn from this? Although that may be simplistic and cliche, you know, you're giving yourself permission to confront the very failure, right? So if there's a play at the end of the game, for instance, and you know that your supervisor's upset, you know, you know that you've got the call wrong, rather than avoiding it, you're taking time to confront it. By confronting it and asking the question and being honest with yourself and learning the lessons, you have to reframe what these lessons now mean. Some people will learn the lesson or absorb the lesson, pardon me, but never learn the lesson and apply it to the next game, right? Because they're filled with pride or ego or something else. So back to your question of how can we still perpetuate positive self-talk without compromising our growth and development? It really comes through what it is that we do in application, right? Where it's not enough to just now say, Here's the question. So that question to me is reframing failure at its core because you're, you're taking the time to observe the thing that went south. And as we all know, we've all been guilty of it. When we watch our game film, it's nice to see how great we look in our movements. It's not always as easy to look at the failed attempts, but when we're celebrating failure, this concept of celebrating it, of flipping it on its head so it's no longer something that has power over you, you give yourself an opportunity to see it from a different perspective. Hi, Adam. Hi, Jeff. Hey, I am, uh, I'm hands-free driving, so uh, you can't see me, but I, this, I hope this isn't too off subject. It's a question about mindfulness. So I wanted to ask you about when you go into a game, especially the big games where you know there's going to be a loud crowd or maybe even a game where you've had some interactions with a coach that haven't been that positive and you know that you're going to face a big game with them, you know, at a higher level. What do you do to get yourself in that mindset of mindfulness? Is there a practice that you use? Um, and are there any tips that you can that you can share? Yes, great, great, powerful question. I love talking about mindfulness. So there is, and it's, it's, um, I've shared this a number of times. So I learned this from a book I call, I read called Attending. It's by Dr. Ronald Epstein. 
who is, uh, he's a uh, Harvard med grad and he oversees the psychiatry division, family medicine practice at University of Rochester Medical School. And the book is about mindfulness and medicine and humanity. So this will get back to Jeff's, uh, to answering Jeff's question. But in that book, Dr. Epstein talked about an experience and I'm not gonna bore you with the story he shared in his book, but he did say that in his own practice, he implemented a mechanism to help him be more grounded and more mindful when he would go from patient to patient. And that very simply was anytime he would hold the doorknob before entering into a new patient's room, he would give himself a moment to just feel what he's feeling. So the trigger was the doorknob, that was the mechanism, but he would feel the coldness touching his hand. He would center himself and ground himself in the moment so that he could leave any distraction of the past patient experience because they're seeing so much in a rapid time. They're going from one life altering or life threatening type of matter to another patient who needs their full attention. So Jeff, back to your question, he would take, you know, he didn't say an exact number. I think from what I recall, it's like three to six seconds of just centering himself by the trigger of the doorknob saying here now. So what I did is in my basketball games, the trigger for me, anytime that my blood pressure is rising, right? My heart rate is increasing and I feel the tension of the moment where you've got one coach yelling because there was just an elbow thrown that we missed and he's trying to get us to go over to the monitor. And then you've got the kid who got the elbow is frustrated. Now they're coming together. You've got all of this chaos. It feels like absolute chaos. The thing in the trigger for me is centering myself by doing this right here. When I'm standing on a floor and I've got fingers crossed down at my hips, it's really just, I don't, you know, if you can see me, my full body but I just bring it down. It's a relaxed state for me. It sends a, a trigger. And I don't know what it's doing from a brain physiological standpoint, but I know when I feel tension in my body, that's my mechanism to remind me to be where my feet are. It allows me to think calmly and with clarity so that I'm not reacting to the situation, but rather thoughtfully responding to the situation. The second thing that it allows me to do is it allows me to stay in a stature where I'm not gyrating with my hands. You can oftentimes misconstrue, be misconstrued with coaches if you're saying, if you're point, you know, if you're pointing, you're saying, you know, you do, whatever it is that you're doing here, as you know, I tend to speak with my hands by nature of my job. This, this allows me from doing that. So gave you probably a little bit more than you bargained for on that, but the short answer is this is my calming mechanism. This is what allows me to be present. If you, you know, if you've seen me work or you watch me work at 100%, that's where I am. Awesome, thanks. Thanks for the question. I love mindfulness talk, of course. Andrew, I can't imagine being 16 and hearing a gentleman like this speak I don't know what I would be thinking at this time, but I'm I'm happy that you're exposed to something like this. What are some of your thoughts or any questions that you have for Adam? I don't have any real questions, but this has been absolutely crazy to listen to. I love this. This is awesome. Thank you, brother. I got nothing. I'm I'm really speechless right now. <laughs> well, thanks for being on this community and you super mature just your your attentiveness. I, I you were nodding with us and 
uh, says a lot about you. So wishing you much success. And um, how long have you been refereeing? Um, I've had my certification since November. I've been doing it for like a year before then, but I've only had my certification since November. Awesome. Congrats. You're in a good group. I appreciate it. I'm always fascinated fascinated by um, people whose careers, their their day job, and how it, it complements officiating, like teachers and coaches, and I think um, police officers and lawyers and, uh, you know, occupations like that. But I look at your field with motivational speaking, and I and I'm just I'm excited to hear how it's kind of helped you on the court with officiating. Could you talk about yeah, that a little bit? There's a, there's a there's a huge intersect, Paul. Yeah, um, you know I I've got to be honest. I I think when I first started my career, and even more so when I got into the mental health space, I felt this pressure to almost be perfect on the floor because of my day job, right? Because I'm typically teaching leaders how to be more effective leaders. So I almost felt this responsibility to never make a mistake. And um, I, I, I've got to be honest, it, it ended up being detrimental, not in a bad way, but in, I mean, pardon me, not in a good way, but in, in, a, in, a, um, in a bad way in that not with partners or coaches, I was actually being less aggressive and assertive because I wanted to be the guy who was like, oh, well, he's calm and present, et cetera. So I, 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 I kind of probably took your question a little bit of a different way, Paul, but I think that our careers uh, and our officiating, in order for us to really um, allow them to blend, we have to be, um, be, be willing to be vulnerable and be human because so many times we take on the identity of a police officer or a teacher or a motivational speaker or a leadership trainer or an owner of a mental health platform. And we believe that we have to exist in this silo or we're just a referee and we believe that our whole identity is wrapped up in refereeing so that this is who we are. And so what I'm saying for me, what helped me really connect the two so it just mesh, I said, I'm just Adam, I'm just me. I'm fallible. I make mistakes. Do I have poor conversations with coaches that might escalate? Of course I do. Does every coach in America love me? Of course they don't. Do I think I do a, an incredibly effective job of diffusing? Yes. I mean, that's not to pat me on the back, but that's a result of my training, right? But I'm still human. So I say that to say, going back to your question, I know I took it a little bit of a different way, Paul, but ultimately I think what allowed me to get through the, the pressure of feeling that I had to be perfect was when I finally said to myself, it's okay to miss plays. It's okay to not know how to deescalate. It's okay because I'm Adam. I'm not a speaker. I'm not a referee. I'm Adam, the human. Love speaking about effective strategies for de-escalating coaches. We do a lot with our rapid responses. So I would love to hear kind of you share some of your tips with the groups on how you're effective with de-escalating angry, loud, hot coaches. Yeah, two things come to, to mind right away. I love the question. Uh, one is tone. Uh, I, you probably talked about this with your group many times, but when somebody is irate by you, bringing your voice here, it gives them permission to come here. 
but it also draws an awareness to the fact that they're being incredibly loud. I never try to tell them how to behave because we don't like to be told what to do as humans. So I never say, you don't need to yell at me, you know, stop yelling at me. I've done it in the past, but in my toolbox now as a more mature version of Adam, as a more equipped speaker, et cetera, my objective now is I always say, you know, if a coach is way there, my, my tone is going to naturally come here. I'm going to say, what, what play coach? What play? And he's still yelling. He's still yelling. Coach, I'm here. I hear you. I hear you. What play are you talking about? The play down there? And it almost inevitably, that helps it come down. Now, sometimes strength needs to be met with strength. Technical fouls are a part of the game, et cetera. Uh, so if the tone piece doesn't work, uh, the other thing that I found to be beneficial before having to go to technical foul is questioning. There's a power in questions. If you ask me a question, my brain is naturally going to begin generating a reply, just like you did right here. You asked me a question. Would two things come to mind? These first two things. Even if somebody dislikes somebody, if they ask a question, our brains begin to find a reply to that question. So by asking engaging, high-gain, thought-provoking, non-close-ended, but open-ended questions that give opportunity for context and dialogue can help deter their irate behavior to a place where now you've got some common ground. So what does that look like? Very simply, as I just phrased there, what play? There is power in that. Act confused. Even if you're sure of, to some extent, giving yourself an opportunity to really dissect what he's saying can be had through use of that question. So coach is yelling, Adam, my guy just got crushed down there. What, or did you not see it? What, Coach, what play? Are you kidding me? 54, he just, what happened? I no, I didn't see it. What happened? How did he run through him? And now you're using questions as opposed to uh, no, he didn't. I didn't have the look. You know, I know there's we're taught like I'm not a big fan of one-liners as much anymore because I think that's dehumanizing experiences. What I try to do with these coaches is have a dialogue. So I don't want to be cute like you know, one line, that's when I was coming up, they were saying, use one liners, you know, we're working hard tonight. I hear you. I, 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 they, I hear you has some validity because people just want to be acknowledged and heard sometimes, but I want it to be a human encounter. And the best way to have a human encounter is by asking engaging questions. And uh, I, let me add one more thing onto that. The questions shouldn't be rhetorical. They shouldn't be delivered in a tone that is dismissive and they shouldn't be delivered in a tone that is condescending. They need to be authentic. Even if you're asking it when you know what it's about, it needs to be delivered in an authentic way. Very helpful. You're describing a lot of, uh, you know, I think there's two ways to go with it when we're responding to coaches, either it's defense or offense. Defense is we're de-escalating, we're bringing down we're, we're, we're bringing their level from a 10 to a two. And then what we have as offense is when, you know, uh, we have to establish those communication guidelines 
in a more um, assertive, assertive way. Um, but these are very helpful tips. I hope everybody that's listening um, puts these in their, their toolbox. Um, Grant, I know you joined us late. It was great seeing you at camp this week with uh, Lance. Thanks for joining us on the call. Did you have any questions uh, for Adam? Uh, no questions. Oops, sorry, no questions. Unfortunately, I joined in late there. Sorry about that. But uh, no, I think I think what he was saying in regards to the communication piece was huge. I just got done at Eddie Jackson's camp um, this past weekend up in Duncanville. And, uh, you know, some of those things, that was kind of the number one thing that I realized that I need to work on was uh, just having that that presence with coaches right i think i allowed a little bit too much behavior to go on just because like they weren't directly addressing me and there were some things that i think that just could have helped with some humanized conversation and just you know through the course of the game building a little rapport to have a little bit more you know like control over their bench decorum or or things like that so um no it was was phenomenal to hear that answer and i and i appreciate it because you know to me like you were saying sometimes those one-liners just feel a little inauthentic to me, right? Like I I tend to be a more personable person. So like having that and like, kind of like you're saying is just matching it with a tone, lowering them, being, you know, just human and and asking questions, bringing the tone down, I think is super helpful for me personally. So I really appreciate it. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for adding that grant. Um, Let's see, where else do we want to go, Mr. James? Wherever you want to go, brother, you take me wherever you want to go. We got a little coach talk in. We like that. Love hearing your perspective on that. Um, You mentioned some of the things that you're passionate about, the mental challenge, understanding that we are operating in an imperfect world, yet striving to be mindful moment by moment in pursuit of an unattainable perfection. I think you you touched a little bit on some of those components during – your opening monologue is there anything you wanted to add to that well i think that's what that's what you know makes officiating exciting is that there there is never going to be a perfect game we understand that but the the challenge uh the internal challenge that is had in pursuit of is what makes it fun and exciting you know it goes back to we talked a little bit about fulfillment i'm a big believer that fulfillment slash happiness, however you may want to look at it, isn't a result of that which we accumulate, but how it is that we grow. Because there are plenty of people who are miserable, who have a lot of money. You know, part of the thing in Mindful Journey, I interview different guests, much like you do, Paul. Um, And one of the guys I had on was uh, former CEO Charles Schwab and David Potruck. You know, on paper, he's very, very successful right? Worth over a billion dollars, been involved in X amount of startups and so forth. And he said to us live on camera that his biggest regret was becoming the CEO of Charles Schwab. And that was a powerful statement. And the way, the reason he said that he elaborated just a little bit, didn't get as vulnerable as selfishly I would have cared for him to talk with us about, but, you know, he's had four failed marriages He's always had a tough time of who to trust because who's wanting something, who's wanting a donation, who's wanting money, et cetera, versus who's authentically there to connect with him at a friendship level. So where I'm going with this goes back to officiating where you mentioned about, you know, I I think a comment I must have made earlier of, you know, this, this pursuit of unattainable perfection, fulfillment 
comes from our growth. And uh, for David, I think he saw that he had accomplished and achieved all these things, but maybe has gotten to a point in his life where he's like, I wasn't fulfilled doing any of it. So now I, I do think he has more fulfillment because he's able to contribute to others and help and serve others. But he's also been able to be challenged in new ways of looking introspectively. And that is providing a fulfillment. It's just like when we cross something off our to-do list, we get a dopamine rush. We build momentum to do another task and another task. We feel happy about ourselves. We're proud of ourselves. Officiating to me is a proud endeavor because we get into it knowing we're never going to attain perfection, yet we're constantly pursuing betterment. And we get incrementally better day after day, game after game. We're never going to be our best because there is no best. I don't know if that makes sense. I, I mean, I, we're, there's always going to be a best version of us as a referee, but to others, we're never going to have made it. So that's the pursuit. There's a, there's a Matthew McConaughey speech, and I'll stop on this note. If I don't know if any other questions are triggered, but you're, this was when he accepted an Oscar, I think it was, and they said uh, he was sharing a story of how many of you may have seen this. It's been viewed probably hundreds of millions of times now. They, they, somebody in his life said, who's your mentor? And, you know, he didn't have an answer. And then they came back, you know, five years later, they said, well, who's your mentor? And he said, you know, I did think about it now and it's me, but 10 years from now. And the person's like, what do you mean? Well, he says, we're never going to achieve it, right? We're never going to reach where we think we should be. We're always chasing yet. And I thought that was such a powerful presentation because here's somebody who, uh, from society standpoint, has achieved success, right? He's won all the accolades awards from an actor standpoint, but acting much like officiating, there is no end game. It's this constant pursuit of betterment. And that to me, Paul, is what makes officiating excitement because my fulfillment comes from this challenge of self to be the best I can be, no matter how many times I fall short in that game. Adam, real quick, uh, I know you've been refing 15 years, I believe eight years at the Division One level. How did your season go, and what are some things that you learned about your game or just about officiating in general this year? Yeah, so the season went well. I stayed out of trouble. Um, I, I don't um, – I'm always learning. I know that's a cliche, but there's always plays, something to look at, something that can be had differently. Uh, I'm in pursuit and on a journey just like all of you. So I guess uh, what I'll say is, you know, it, how it went. I'm grateful for every opportunity I get. Um, you know, I'm obviously I, I'm wanting to work postseason. I did work a CBI game this year, uh, opening round, which was Indiana State and USC Upstate. Um, it was a 116 seed. So it's a nice opportunity for me. But obviously, I want I want more. And, um, you know, so I guess I, I say all that to say, my my challenge is how do I get into conference tournaments? And then, you know, from there, how do I get into the next layer of the tournament? And then, so it's just this constant pursuit. Uh, but, Paul, I don't think there's anything uh, substantial that was absorbed from this last year other than this consistent reminder to me, much like I reminded you all tonight, to, to um, you know, to appreciate the opportunities you have and to continually work for what's to come 
and to detach your identity from it just because I didn't get in to X or Y league from last year or get into X or Y tournament, it doesn't mean that Adam is a failure. If they fire me tomorrow, I am still Adam. I'm still going to be able to continue with my life. Well, we really appreciate your time tonight, Adam. Uh, you've taught us a lot. Um, what do you want to say in closing to the dedicated audience of basketball officials that are listening in? What do you want to leave us with? Dedicated audience to basketball officials. Well, number one, I'd like to commend you again. I know I did on the front end, but we got some new faces who joined us now. Uh, what you do is not easy. So thank you because you're involved in a community of Crown Refs saying serve the game. And it is the game first that we get to say serve. The second thing I'd love to leave you with is uh, detach your identity from officiating. Much like we talked about throughout this entirety of this conversation, we are not Jeff or Luke or whomever the official. I am not Adam the official. I am just me. And I think sometimes our ego get in the way of the opportunity we have to connect with humans. I have had quite the journey, much of which I didn't even share, plagued with adversity where I have failed time and again in this business. And I gotta tell you, it hurt in the moment, but I truly am, and it's not lip service, a better person as a result of the missed opportunities. And I think we need to keep that front and center because the opportunities that are missed do not need to turn us into people who we are not. I've seen it too many times with friends of mine that have come into this business, end up quitting officiating, and they end up being miserable in life as a result of missed opportunities in officiating. So I leave you with that. Detach from it being your identity, but continue to serve the game because the game needs you. Thank you for listening to the Crown Refs Podcast. Serve the game. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If our podcast has brought you any value in the past, then we would love if you considered joining our mentor program and private community for officials. You can go to patreon.com backslash crown to get started today.